What a fortuitous moment. What joy, what delight, what excitement to come to the Torch Center in Houston, Texas, and to record the final episode of Year 6 of the Parsha Podcast, the final Parsha of the Torah, Vizos HaBracha. I want to thank all of y'all for being the best audience and making sure that I have the responsibility to produce each week. If not for y'all, I would have canceled this a long time ago. I especially appreciate all of y'all that send me text messages and emails. Rabbi, how come you haven't produced? You haven't released the new episode? It's always wonderful to get that nudge and that encouragement. Of course, I have to take this moment to publicly thank the Almighty. The truth is, every single week, and I'm not exaggerating, and I'm not trying to embellish it to have some more drama on the podcast, Every single week, I feel like it's a miracle when I come to the Torch Center to record and I have something interesting, something novel, something useful to tell you on the Parsha. It's a miracle. It's a gift from the Almighty on high. And we thank Him for His holding of our hands and giving us this tremendous blessing of studying Torah each with together. And we hope and we pray that we can continue into year seven, please God, with renewed vigor and energy next week with Parshas Bereshis. Now, as you, of course, know, it's it's Friday already. And usually I try to record a little bit earlier in the week. But of course, this week is Sukkot. And that means that this Shabbos is the Shabbos of the intermediate days of Cholomoid of Sukkot. So we don't actually read Vezos HaBracha this week. We're going to read it on the upcoming Tuesday on Simchas Torah. So we have some breathing room, but I wanted to get it out this week before Shabbos, the final episode of Year 6. I'm so excited. Let's begin. I want to focus on a fascinating idea that makes an appearance in our parsha at the very beginning. Moshe is on his deathbed. Even though he is full of vigor, he hasn't lost a step, but he's giving a blessing to the Jewish people, first initially to the whole nation, and then to each tribe individually, and then he's going to ascend the mountain, and we're going to have the eulogy of Moshe, the death and the burial of Moshe, and the conclusion of the Torah. But at the very beginning, we read that Moshe is saying that God came from Sinai and shone upon the Jewish people from Seir, and he appeared from Mount Paran, and he came, Mirivivos Kodesh, and Rashi explains what these things all mean. In his right hand, he had the Torah. And Rashi explains an idea that is featured in the Midrash and the Talmud, and that's going to be the idea that we're going to focus on in the podcast what does it mean that God shone from Seir and he appeared from Mount Paran? When God came to Sinai, of course, Sinai is the mountain upon which the Jewish people received the Torah. Before God came to the Jewish people, he first went to Mount Seir. And Mount Seir, that's where the descendants of Esav live. And before he came to offer the Jewish people the Torah, he offered the Torah to the people, the descendants of Esav. And they didn't want it. And he went 
to the descendants of Ishmael. And he offered them likewise, he offered them the Torah. And they too refused. Until finally came to the Jewish people on Mount Sinai, and he gave them the Torah, the Torah that was written previously with black fire atop of white fire, very dramatic description the Rashi offers us. But what an interesting piece of information that we're told over here at the very end of the Torah. After all that we've learned and all that we've seen and experienced and underwent, now at the very end of the Torah, we're told that God offered the Torah, not just to us, but to the descendants of Esau and Ishmael, the two other children of Abraham. Of course, Abraham had Isaac as his primary son and heir, but he also had the older son, Ishmael, And Ishmael was given a chance to receive the Torah, to accept the Torah, and he refused. Similarly, of course, Isaac had twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob, of course, spawns the Jewish nation, his 12 sons, the 12 tribes. And they undergo a lot of trials and tribulations, and they eventually end up in Egypt and they burgeon into a great nation, and we have the ten plagues and the exodus and the manna, and they're enveloped by those miraculous clouds of glory, and they receive the Torah at Sinai. What about the other family? What about the descendants of Asaph? Well, they're still a nation. They too have burgeoned into a great nation, and they were also given a chance to receive the Torah. But they refused. They didn't want it. We accepted it, and they did not. Now, the source of this idea is in the Talmud and the Midrash, as we mentioned. And there we discover some more details about this offer to give the Torah to the other nations. Just as it was offered to Esau and Ishmael, it was likewise offered to every other nation. Amr Rabbi Yochanan, this is the Talmud book of Aforazar, page 2b. The Almighty took the Torah, al kol Uma Vilashon, to every nation, to every people, to every language, Vilotibluha. And they did not accept it. Ad Sheba Etzel Yisrael, until he came to Israel, to the Jews, Vitibluha, and they accepted the Torah. Now the Talmud is mum, as is Rashi, as to why they did not accept it. But the Midrash reveals some more details as to why those other nations. Esav, Ishmael, the rest of the nations refused the Torah. We read the following. God sent some angels to go to the descendants of Esav and offer them the Torah. Do you want the Torah? And they responded with some, with some questions, just some due diligence. Well, what does it say in the Torah? So the angel responded, well, it says, thou shall not murder. And they responded, Master of the world, the essence of our people, the essence of our founder, Esau, he's a murderer. The voice is the voice of Jacob, and the hands, the physicality, the violence, that is the legacy of, of Esau. And after Jacob usurped the blessings from Esau, Isaac gave Esau a second blessing. This is in Genesis 27. You will live on your sword. 
the essence of our nation is, is murder. We can't accept the Torah. And then God went to the descendants of Lot. You remember Lot? Remember him from Genesis? Abraham's brother-in-law slash nephew? Well, he had an illicit relationship with his two daughters. You recall after the overturning of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that spawned two nations, the nations of Ammon and Moab. And they were offered the Torah. And again, they asked for some details, just doing their due diligence. What does it say in the Torah? And God responded, Thou shall not engage in promiscuity. No adultery. And they said, well, master of the world, we can't sign on the dotted line. The founding of our nation was done in this very inappropriate, promiscuous, and illicit fashion. And therefore, we're out. And the sons of Ishmael were offered the Torah, and they asked what's in it, and God responded, thou shall not steal. And they said, well, that's not a deal for us. What does it say about Ishmael? He will be a wild man. His hand is in everything. We can't keep our hands in our own pockets. We got to stick it into other people's pockets as well. We're out. And every nation was off the Torah. And every nation responded with a request for some, just some more details. And God responded with something that they felt was a deal breaker. Until finally, the Jewish people were off the Torah and they accepted it. That's the pattern. Every nation's off the Torah. They ask for some details. And God responded with precisely the mitzvah that was their Achilles heel. Esav, we know, he did excel in some mitzvahs. In fact, our sages tell us that when it came to honoring your father, Esav was actually greater than Jacob. That would not be the mitzvah that would turn Esav off. It was murder. And when they asked for some sample, give me some sample, give me a sneak peek into the Torah, they were told about murder. And that's why they passed. Ishmael, we know, excelled in kindness and hospitality and prayer but theft, well, that's that's a red line for them. And for that reason, I'm out. Amunumov, the whole nation was founded on incest and promiscuity. For that reason, they were out. And so on. Every nation was given the mitzvah that they felt was untouchable. It makes you wonder, you know, what were the French, the Germans, the Chinese, the Americans, the Swiss? What would they have said? if God offered them the Torah. Every nation wanted to know the terms of the deal. And God would have responded with the one untouchable thing of that nation. I can do everything, everything, yes, but not this. And for that reason, I'm out. Now, what happened when God finally offered the Torah to the Jewish people? So the Midrash tells us, after going to all the other nations... God came to the nation of Israel. And they all responded with one mouth, with one voice. We're going to keep the whole Torah. We're going to do it. And we're going to fulfill whatever is written in it. And it quotes the verse in Exodus 
Call Asher Diber Hashem Naase Finishma. Everything that God says, we will do and we will listen. When our nation was offered the Torah, we didn't flinch. We didn't waver. We didn't hesitate or vacillate or consult with our spouses, accountants, or lawyers. We will do, and then we will listen. We will do whatever is in it. Naaseh v'nishma. That's an idea that's featured at the beginning of our parasha. And I think it's an amazing window into some of the, you know, the backstory of the Sinai revelation. There were some negotiations. All the other nations were given a fair shot, you would think, ostensibly, at the Torah. And they all had this extended back and forth, this dialogue with God. And ultimately, they all said no, but our nation said yes. And I think if you examine this whole idea, there are some obvious questions that must be posed. On a basic level, we want to know what, what is the salience of this little anecdote? You know, why, why does it matter? Why do we need to, what's the lesson for us about the fact that the Torah was peddled to the nations and they all said no? I think that's the basic question we have to ask. You know, if we're told about this, there must be some sort of lesson that we can glean and derive from it, what's the lesson? Another question we can ask is, well, was this a real offer? Like what would have happened in the counterfactual world had one of those nations, in fact, accepted it? What would that look like? Another question And that is that it seems from the Midrash, it's implied in the Talmud, it's explicit in some of the commentators, that the nations were offered the Torah first. And only after they passed, only after they refused, only then was it offered to the Jewish nation. Why did those other nations have the rights of first refusal? Aren't we the chosen people? Aren't we the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? We spent more than two centuries as slaves in Egypt. We should have first dibs. Why were we offered the Torah last? Moreover, the timing of this revelation is a little bit funny. It's a little bit peculiar. You know, the Sinai revelation that happened in the book of Exodus. We're at the end of the Torah now, the end of the book of Devarim Deuteronomy. Why are we only told now about this whole dialogue and negotiations and back and forth and every other nation was given a shot at it? Why are we told this here and now? Why only at the end of the Torah are we told that there was actually this whole negotiation with every other nation. It makes much more sense, you would imagine, to mention it at the time of the sign of Revelation. If you think about it, those negotiations, they happened 40 years prior to the events of our Parsha. Before the sign of Revelation. Sign of Revelation 
is a couple of weeks after the Exodus. Now we're 40 years after the Exodus. Why are we only told it now, on the last day of Moshe's life, in the very last Parsha in the Torah? And one more question, which really gets to the heart, I think, of this idea. The nations are off of the Torah. They don't know what's included in the Torah. So they, you would imagine, quite prudently, they asked for some details. And God responded with specifically the red lines, the deal breakers, the untouchables that for them make it a no-go. Why did God specifically highlight those things that are likely to turn them off? You could imagine, if God wanted them to accept it, he could have tempted them. He could have presented it in a way that was more appealing, more palatable to them. Give them something that you know they could enjoy or they could live with. Court them. Woo them. And later on, you give them, you know, some of the fine print. When you want to attract someone, you want to attract someone to a certain ideology, you want to embrace someone into your, into your group, into your religion, into your people. So you showcase the things that are appealing about it. You'll get this and you'll get that and here are the benefits Instead, God highlighted the things that are the most difficult for them. Why does God seemingly push them away by giving them the most bitter sample of the Torah, something that directly violates their tradition? Oh, this is what Esav was like, and Ishmael, and Amun Amav. Why does God highlight their inborn weaknesses? It seems like you know, they're asking for what's in the Torah. A fair answer would be to give them, you know, some of the things that are more easy, some of the things that are maybe a bit harder, some of the things that are more fun, some of the things that are very difficult. If you tell them, well, you get to sit in a sukkah outside for seven days, and you get to spend time with your family, that sounds like maybe, maybe fun, that sounds like exciting. Oh, and on your Kippur, you fast and don't eat and don't drink for 26 hours and pray nonstop. Maybe that you would have uh, not, not highlighted it as much if you wanted them to accept it. It seems like there's an uneven answer to their question. It's kind of weighted to one side, specifically to the side that is so hard for them. Why was the mitzvah that was their Achilles heel? Why is that the sample that God is going to tell them? when they asked for the details of the Torah. I want to suggest an approach about this whole idea of the offering of the Torah initially to the other nations and how it was offered and how it was portrayed. And I think that if we understand what's happening here, we'll learn about what differentiates our nation from the other nations and hopefully we'll get to the heart of what Torah is all about. It seems that although this was a serious offer, there was never a possibility 
for those nations to accept it. And the reason is, what it takes to accept this offer is a fidelity to God and a belief in the capacity for change that only a nation that had undergone what our nation, what our people had experienced prior to this offer, only such a nation would be capable of accepting such an offer. Our nation spent more than 400 years preparing for this offer. For this offer, the offer that you can refuse. Our nation spent more than 400 years preparing to be able to say, we will do and we will listen. Abraham and all of his sacrifices and his commitment to God and his development of his character and his defeating of the Sahara, all in the face of fierce opposition and the binding of Isaac and the ten tests and Jacob and everything that he had to undergo and the descent to Egypt with the sale of Joseph and the hundreds of years of servitude and of course the, the exodus in miraculous fashion and we're eating manna, drinking water out of a well from Iraq and we're enveloped by the miraculous clouds of glory. All that was a preparation for this moment. And only a nation that had been actively preparing for this offer for centuries, only we were capable of accepting it. In the words of the Talmud, the Torah was only given to the eaters of manna. Only to the people that were eating manna at the time when this offer was presented. Only that nation was capable of saying yes. These people whose faith had been honed for centuries, these people who have been shown that God takes care of those who love him and fear him and believe in him, these people who are eating manna, parachuting down from heaven, these people can have the confidence that when God gives you a gift, and it's gift-wrapped. And you don't know what it contains. And he says, do you want it? You don't need to peek inside to inspect it, to evaluate it, to do your due diligence about it. You accept it. You can rely on God that if he gives you a gift, it's worth accepting and embracing. The other nations, they, they really had no chance. The Arachayim, in fact, says, and that's what it's implied from the Talmud of the book of Avodah that really there was, no, there was no way for them to accept this offer. And the only reason why the offer was extended was to mute any criticism when it came time, or it comes time, for our nation to reap the benefits of Torah, no one can have any questions or qualms about the fairness of the deal, because after all, you were offered it. 
The nations, in fact, were incapable of accepting this offer. Only us, who have had those triumphs, those sacrifices of our glorious and illustrious antecedents, only us that went through the crucible of Egypt, we're the only ones who are capable of accepting this offer. And all of our prior history up to that point was a preparation. A preparation for the time when you are going to be given this offer. You are prepared to accept it. Now, if what we're saying is true, there are some amazing takeaways from this exchange. What is the difference between our nation and all the other nations? It seems like the difference is manifested in our ability to accept this offer when everyone else is going to say no. It means this, this exchange, this negotiation, this offer, the offer that you can refuse. We accepted it and they didn't. That's not some sort of ancillary difference between us and the other nations. This is where our uniqueness is truly exhibited. Everything that led up to that point separated, differentiated us from them. Because of who we are and because of how we've built ourselves, we were able to accept it sight unseen. And because of who they were and what they did and the choices that they made, well, they need to know what's inside of it. And once they learn about the sacrifice that God would be asking of them, they rejected the gift. And I think if we discover what the essence of this difference is, we'll learn both about what makes our nation special, what's our superpower, but also we'll learn about what Torah is supposed to do to us. So the first thing we, of course, already mentioned, our nation was willing to accept the Torah sight unseen because we relied on God. And God was already providing for us. He already established his credibility in our eyes. He's given us the manna. He did all his miracles in Egypt. We have our relationship, an existing relationship that makes us comfortable to rely on him when he gives us a gift that is at least in the eyes of the Gentiles, ominously different. But furthermore, when the nations inquired about the content of the Torah, and they were informed that the Torah contains precisely whatever it is that their weakness, their greatest weakness is. And we asked the question, well, why focus on the untouchables. Why give them a skewed picture of the Torah? Of course, the Torah contains things that are that are really hard. But it also contains mitzvot that you will be naturally inclined to do anyhow. Why focus on the untouchables? I think there's a profound lesson here. The best way to describe what Torah is here to do to us is to specifically highlight those things that we think are so immovable, so untouchable, so fixed 
so rigidly unshakable. And those themes, that's what Torah is there to change. Everything is changeable with Torah. And that's really the most attractive part of Torah. The most attractive part of Torah is that there's nothing, once we have Torah, there's nothing that can stop us, should we be determined and put in all the hard work, from elevating and from fixing and from refining and changing everything. Torah, we like to say here, is the instruction manual, the roadmap to become an angel. But I have so many problems and I have so many flaws and there's so many things that I can't do and there's so many things holding me back. Yes. And that's what Torah is there to do. And when the nations, when they were told this, they favored stasis. They favored the status quo. They favored saying, I'm just too comfortable with who I am. Right? This is my identity. This is, this is our tradition. This is going all the way back to our great, 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 great granddaddy Esau. Esau. We call him Esau. Esau. Ishmael. Lot. Lot. And his daughters. We can't change. So yes, the Almighty was telling them about the mitzvos that are the most difficult ones for them. But that is actually, if you think about it, that's, that's really what Torah is all about. And that's the most exciting part of Torah. It can help you overcome even those things that you don't believe that you could change. That's the power of Torah. And thus, there is no more fitting mitzvah to sample than the one that you think is impossible for you to accept. That thing that point where you feel like change from here on out is impossible, even through that, even through that barrier, even through that brick wall that you think is just immovable, even through that, the Torah can batter through. The nations, they all rejected Torah. They came with their priors. They came with their untouchables. They came with their red lines. This is who we are, and it's not changeable. This is our identity, and it's fixed. Even though perhaps it wasn't an offer that they could have accepted, they didn't have the preparation to do that, it's valuable for us to know about this, because this counterfactual offer shows us what Torah is really all about. It shows us what's the most attractive, seductive part of Torah. Whatever it is that we feel like are our hangups, whatever are the things that we think we just, we just can never live without. I could do everything but this. That but this? Whatever, whatever that is? That is actually what Torah is there for. Torah is there for, for us to believe in ourselves and our capacity to actually elevate ourselves completely in every way, in every field, in every arena. In every battleground, we can win. 
And the areas that we think are the most difficult, that's what we're here to work on. And that's what Torah is really all about. And the Jews understood that. And they said, we will do and we will listen. They accepted it without hearing the details. We will commit before we know what it entails. Of course, that's a testament on their reliance on God. But what if really it it is too hard? Why not ask for some details? The Jewish people were operating under the assumption that if God gives it to us, it must be doable. But also, we have been conditioned to accept the reality that change is possible. Nothing is too difficult. Nothing is beyond us. And we're in. We're in sight unseen. We're coming to God and saying, okay, we're moldable. We're changeable. We can be fixed in every area. The way things are, are not the way things need to remain. Because you're going to give us Torah. And Torah, in fact, is this great gift. Because precisely, it enables us to reach the absolute pinnacle. It enables us to become angels. It enables us to achieve anything and everything. And that is a fitting way to end the Torah. If this is what we learn in this anecdote, I think it's quite fittingly placed over here at the end of the Torah. When Moshe wants to praise our nation before he passes, and when we as readers want to synopsize what Torah is all about, we read about this singular distinction between us and everyone else, and we understand what the power and opportunity that the Torah contains. Now, there is more, but like I said, it's Friday afternoon. We have to wrap up. And I really want to leave something also for next year. I don't want to exhaust. Now that the producers have signed us up for year seven, I don't want to exhaust all my material. I got to leave something for next year. But I will tell you one more quick idea, just because it helps round out some of our philosophical understandings that are deduced from this exchange. I remember hearing that our sages say that when God came to the nations and offered them the Torah, they refused. But there were some dissidents. There were some lone voices in each nation who did, in fact, say, I'm in. But they were outvoted. And therefore, that nation ultimately did not receive the Torah. But those individual dissident souls are the souls of the converts, the souls that will eventually join, or in fact, perhaps have joined already which is another 
interesting idea to pull away from this exchange, from this negotiation, from this offer that you can refuse. Okay, let's do this week's exquisite insight, the final exquisite insight of this Parsha podcast cycle, the final exquisite insight of year six of the Parsha podcast. There is a fascinating discussion in the Talmud regarding the final eight verses of the Torah. The Talmud of the book of Bava Basra, page 15a, tells us that there's a little bit of a problem because the eighth to last verse in the Torah says that Moshe died. And who wrote those words? Is it possible that Moshe wrote the words and Moshe died? Well, if he is dead, he can't write it. And if he's alive, it's not true. So who wrote the final eight verses of the Torah? So the Talmud brings two opinions. The first opinion is that, well, Moshe wrote most of the Torah. Of course, the whole Torah is, is the actual author is God, but who's the scribe? Who actually wrote down the physical ink on the physical parchment? The absolute majority of the Torah is Moshe. The first opinion in the Talmud says, well, the last eight verses were written by Joshua, Moshe's successor. That's the first opinion. The second opinion says, well, no, that, that's not the correct answer. Moshe wrote the whole Torah. And in fact, the Torah talks about how Moshe delivered the whole Torah. How can he deliver the whole Torah if it's missing eight verses? Rather, this is how the last eight verses were written. Up to this point, God would say to Moshe to write, write the first word of the Torah, Bereshus. And Moshe would enunciate those words, Bereshus, and would write the word, Bereshus. And then he would write the next word, and so on. But these last eight verses, God said to Moshe the words, and Moshe did not pronounce them, and didn't even write it down with ink. He wrote them down with tears. Moshe Kosev Bedema. Moshe wrote them down with tears. That's the Talmud in the book of Baba Basra, page 15a. Now, if you think about it, both opinions in the Talmud agree that these final eight verses are somewhat different than the preceding 5,837 verses. The only disagreement is how are they different? One opinion says they're written by Joshua, not by Moshe. Or they're written by Moshe, but not with ink, or not the way it's typically done, but with tears. I read a Kabbalistic take on this subject, a deeper and, in fact, quite exquisite insight that I want to share. We know the Jewish people in the wilderness, they were surrounded by the clouds of glory. In fact, the sukkah that we currently are sitting in over the course of this festival is a reminder of the clouds of glory. And the clouds of glory were highly beneficial for the nation 
one of the ways that they were beneficial is that it rendered them invisible to their enemies. And thus they were impervious to attacks. When the Jews were in the, in the clouds, enveloped by the clouds, the other nations, their enemies, didn't know where they were. And thus the nation was safe. But right after the Exodus, even before the Sinai revelation, when the nation was in the city of, or the place of Rephidim, they were attacked by Amalek. How were they attacked by Amalek? If they were in the clouds, and they were invisible, and they were impervious. And the answer is, this is featured in the end of Parshas Tisetse, that the nation of Amalek did not attack the nation itself or the, the main force of the nation. They attacked the stragglers. There were some people who were not included in those clouds of glory. People who were of the lowest elements of the Jewish people. This was a contingent of the tribe of Dan, there were some groups of Jews who tried to smuggle some idolatry out of Egypt. And because they were not really worthy of being inside the clouds, they were expelled from those clouds, and thus they were exposed to the elements, and Amalek came and attacked them. And in fact, when the war with Amalek actually happened in chapter 17 of Exodus, Moshe tells Joshua, that's the first place that Joshua appears in the Torah. Moshe tells Joshua, say, go out and make war with Amalek. Why did Moshe tell Joshua to go out? What does it mean, go out and make war with Amalek? And the answer is because the war happened outside the clouds. Inside the clouds, there was no threat at all. The war happened outside the clouds with Amalek attacking those Jews who were not worthy of being inside the clouds. And therefore, if you're going to fight the war, you have to leave the clouds and go attack, go fight, go battle, go wage war with Amalek. Now, what does this have to do with the final eight verses of the Torah? We know that every letter in the Torah corresponds to a soul of the 600,000 souls amongst their nation. There are 600,000 letters in the Torah, one for every soul. Now, the greatest of the souls of the Jewish people, that's Moshe's soul. And the first letter of the Torah in fact, if you look in the Torah scroll, it's a large letter. It's the letter Bet, or Bet, or Bez, Beratius. And that corresponds to the soul of Moshe, the greatest of the souls. And as the Torah progresses, it's organized in the order of greatest soul, all the way in descending order. And therefore, the lowest souls... Of course, every soul is powerful. Every soul is lofty. Every soul is, is just incredible 
energy and power and potential. But not every soul is Moshe's soul. As the Torah progresses, the level of the souls corresponding to those letters are progressively weaker. And the lowest of the souls correspond to the letters at the very end of the Torah. And the very last words of the Torah, Le'enei kol Yisrael, for the eyes of all of Israel, those correspond to the absolute lowest of the souls of our nation. Incidentally, Rashi tells us there, what does it mean before the eyes of all of Israel? That corresponds to the shattering of the luchos, the shattering of the tablets. Why were the tablets shattered? Because of those elements, those lowest souls amongst us who made the golden calf. These final eight verses talks about the death of Moshe. Talks about the burial and the eulogy of Moshe. And they're of a different level. Either they weren't written by Moshe or they were written by Moshe, but on a lower degree. These verses, they're almost like expelled, so to speak, from the rest of the verses. The rest of the verses are included in the clouds of glory. And those verses, the final eight verses, are like expelled from it. When the first set of tablets were shattered, that resulted in the nation being capable of forgetting Torah. If we had the first set of tablets, we would have never forgotten any word of Torah. It's only because we got a second set of tablets and the first ones were shattered that Torah can be forgotten. When Moshe died, the Talmud tells us, the nation forgot 3,000 laws. The idea of letters, of laws, of souls being expelled, being forgotten on a, again, a deeper Kabbalistic level, that's what's happening here when we are reading about the final eight verses and we know that they correspond to the souls of the Jewish people. Now we understand a little bit more about the origin of those souls, and thus these verses and letters, these correspond to the lowest elements among our nation. Yes, they're still included in the nation, but on a different level. They're not quite enveloped by the clouds of glory, and it's only thanks to them that we have the capacity of losing Moshe and forgetting the Torah. Interesting, I think, exquisite insight. As you know from previous weeks, it's an insight. I can't say I fully understand it, but I think it's kind of neat, and it definitely qualifies, in my opinion, as exquisite. And that's a wrap. Thank you so much for listening. From the Torch Center in Texas, we're signing off from year six of the Parsha podcast. Have an incredible rest of your day. An exquisite and uplifting and powerful and meaningful and unforgettable Shabbos upcoming. Enjoy Shabbos. Enjoy the rest of the festival. Dance with all your energy on Simchas Torah. And next week, please God, we will continue onward to year seven of the Parsha podcast with the help of the Almighty with the support of 
you, the listener, you, the friend, you, the supporter, you, the incredible family of the Parsha podcast. As always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com.